0: 51 and a half where we talk about all things science fiction fantasy horror and pop culture i am your host john allen and with me as always is the heart of the operation
1: Snyderman 501 nick snyder
0: nick remind our aliens
1: how they can get a hold of us oh john they can get a hold of us on twitter at the area 51h they can find us under the same handle on tiktok and instagram and of course you can find us on facebook by searching for area 51 and a half Let's get right into it. This weekend, we saw the premiere of
0: Prey, the latest movie in the Predator franchise. And as always, the internet is divided. You either loved it or hated it. Nick, let's try and make some sense of it. Let's do. But
1: first, here is your spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. alert. So I have seen um, a lot of positive reviews about it. And of course, you know, always a negative, but I liked it. I liked it for what it was. I thought before getting into the meat of, of the movie, I thought it was a really acceptable sequel into the Predator franchise because that is also a really low bar.
0: Yeah. I would say that acceptable is probably a good descriptor for me. I didn't feel like this movie broke any new ground. It was certainly watchable. Um, I'm not saying it was spectacular, I'm not saying it was trash.
1: I mean, of course it broke new ground. It was a good Predator movie. <laughs> okay. One of the things I really enjoyed about it was the protagonist, but I still had some problems with Nadu. First and foremost, and this is this doesn't have anything to do with uh, Amber Midthunder's performance, but more with the script, she is the most Disney princess- protagonist i've ever seen in a predator movie (laughs) and i i've kind of felt like she would have been more at home as the main character in moana is what i mean like she's got she's in the village she wants to prove herself all the usual typical disney isms and i you know i don't know if that's because disney now owns 20th century fox or whatever but that's just kind of the feeling i got
0: well, she's a very interesting character in the fact that she has her feet in two parts of her her culture and her tribe. Yeah, You know, because she's got the, the medicinal gatherer, uh, traditional female role side, mm-hmm. but she also has this warrior spirit about
1: it. Yeah, and one of the things I really liked about the warrior spirit is that when you're watching this movie... And you see how she's interacting with the men in the tribe. With the exception of her brother, a lot of the men are like, hey, why is this woman joining us on these hunts? Why is this woman doing this, that, and the next thing? But if you watch what she's doing, she doesn't have the mind of a hunter. She's actually not really all that great at hunting. But what she is good at is coming up with plans. She's a tactician. And you see that when she's hunting. When she's hunting the eagle at the start, she says to her brother, who just kills the thing, she says to him that she's waiting for it to circle back so she doesn't have to cross the river to get it. She's thinking ahead. And that, to me, is more of a warrior than a hunter.
0: Yeah, and one of the things that the script does particularly well, I feel, is that it shows her sort of learning things as she
1: goes along.
0: You know, oh. she, she finds different ways that we know later on she's going to use them against the Predator.
1: Yeah, like one of the best things she does, in my opinion, in the movie is when she attaches the rope to her throwing axe, to her tomahawk. That is really cool and shows how smart she is, how innovative she can be, right? Right. And as she continues doing some of the stuff in the beginning, she constantly fails at hunting, but her, even when her, the plan that she... At one point they're hunting a mountain lion and she comes with a plan of we're going to wait for it to come to us we're going to sit in the tree and wait for it to come to us and that failed but later on her brother goes on to explain hey i used your plan and it worked i killed the lion it's it's a really neat kind of character arc that she has because she goes from being this girl who wants to prove herself this woman who wants to prove herself and she becomes a character, full, a fully fleshed out, wonderful character who does, in the end, she, she defeats all of the things in her way and she does prove herself.
0: And we care about her and we care about all the different things that she learns. Like there, There's this really great point. One of the criticisms that people had was that it was a slow build, it was a slow burn. I didn't really find this to be a slow burn. I found it to be character-driven because this does take place
1: greatly in the past in like the 1700s i believe and that's kind of the thing as well because the other predator movies do take place in the modern world and yeah they're all shoot up action films and that is kind of what you get from this series so i do understand people maybe finding it a little boring based on that But again, I think this is probably one of the better Predator movies.
0: But it is the build-up to it, because one of the things that happens to her is as she's alone in the woods, she's out hunting with her dog. She's out practicing her skills, because she needs to go through this process that her brother says uh, is is the way to her path as a warrior, which is that she has to hunt something that is hunting her. Now, what does that sound like,
1: Nick? Well, that sounds like the Predator.
0: Exactly. So we see this sort of yin and yang with with her and the Predator, if you will. So oh, yeah. we see her out there doing these things, practicing these skills so that she can participate in this, this great hunt that, that transcends her into the warrior she wants to become. And what does she see? She sees the alien spaceship. She sees the Predator's ship. And what does she say about it? She says she saw the uh, Thunderbird.
1: Yeah, yeah. So
0: she sees this omen that is significant to her culture.
1: Yeah. And it's really cool that she goes to her brother with that and says, I saw a sign. I think it's time now. And it's, it's just such a wonderful thing because it's a very different kind of form of narrative. Because if that had been in the modern world, the brother would have said, you hi. Well, the thing of it is, is that it, it foreshadows. Yes, absolutely it does. Well, there's a lot of things in what's happening that kind of parallels and foreshadows the rest of the movie. Because if you look at, if you look at uh, Nadu and you look at the predator, they're essentially trying to do the same thing. Like I am pr- I think part of this is a predator that's trying to prove himself. Yeah, I got the idea that this was not a fully matured predator. Yeah, because when you look at it, he starts with something fairly small, the wolf, for example.
0: Oh, no, he starts even smaller than that. If you remember, the, it was a really sort of a great scene. Now, one of the criticisms right. that people had of this was that they felt that the animals were too CGI'd, but you're not going to get animals to behave this way, so you have to CGI them. So it's, it's that moment where um, we see the, I think it was like a, a mouse got a bug or something. Bug, like and that. then the, and snake, the snake gets the mouse the, and then the, the, the predator, predator gets, gets the, the snake. snake. So he starts yeah. off very small and very low. And it's one of those situations where he saw that the snake was the dominant predator in that circle
1: yeah and so that's what he wants to go for yeah and even when the when the he's taking down the wolf he doesn't go for the wolf until the wolf has got its uh, mouth on the, the rabbit that it's chasing right
0: and then he sort of comes to respect that wolf because the wolf does not back down from him
1: yeah so what he's doing is he's sussing out what is actually the predator in this situation That he has to hunt,
0: and we see him build up from animal to animal until he takes on a grizzly bear,
1: and that is a wicked scene too. That was brilliant, and it it it, seeing it fight the bear, and it's still invisible. So I can and and Nadu witnesses this, and she sees it, and I could only imagine what was going through that girl's mind at the time, like. There's, something's lifting but, the bear in the air. Yeah,
0: but that's that's the amazing thing about her character is the fact that we get this idea. There is the theme of the patriarchy in there and not listening to uh, women. Yeah, yeah, know, yeah. And them having just as many significant skills as the others, yeah. right? So, I mean, this is one of the journeys that she has to go on is convincing her tribe that no, this isn't a mountain lion. This isn't a bear. This is something else.
1: Well, and we see that a lot. And... When she first discovers the, the the predator's tracks, she brings it to the other the, the men in the tribe, and they're like, "It's probably a bear." And it's like, "Okay, what bear walks on its hind legs?"
0: Right. And, and it's and it's interesting too because you know the the other hunters in the tribe uh, sit there and dismiss her, but her brothers does stand up for her because they're yeah. out looking for one of their fallen hunters. Uh, one of their brethren and the brother says to to them it's like hey
1: do you know medicine do you know how you're gonna fix him if we find him alive no she does she comes with us yeah and i i love how supportive the brother is in this movie like the brother there are points when the brother does come off as a jerk but if you look at those points it's it's out of concern for his sister
0: it's out of protection. It's out of her,
1: his desire for her to be all that she can be,
0: for her to not participate in this function until she is 100% ready, where he is really sort of the teacher and she's the
1: student. Yeah. But then in the end, she, it's not a case of her being ready. It's a case of she has to be ready. Because yeah. if she isn't, if she doesn't ready herself, She's going to die.
0: Yeah, and and continuing along with that sort of subversive theme with the patriarchy, we also see that the predator doesn't consider her a threat.
1: Yeah, the the predator, and this is something that's been established multiple times in the previous movies, is the predator is not going to go after you unless it sees you as a threat, unless it sees you as another predator. Like, it probably would not go after a rabbit, for example. It's kind of the same thing. She hasn't attacked him. She hasn't shown any aggression towards the predator, so yeah, he's not going to attack her. And that's behavior we've seen in the previous movies. Yeah, and we
0: we have seen this also when they sort of do the um, crossover with the Alien versus Predator. Yeah, the first Alien versus Predator movie, the uh, final girl, if you will, that Predator sees her as an ally, sees her as an equal warrior dubs her as such he's not going after her because the enemy of my enemy is my friend exactly so they have a
1: code and even in the the second movie when faced against the, the the woman detective i can't remember the character's name but he realizes hey this woman's pregnant i can't attack her um and that's that's kind of the thing right is that these things do have a code they do have something that they live by right but they are still vicious, vicious creatures. Yeah. Now, I did, I
0: did actually like that subtext with the, the sort of dismantling the patriarchy, if you will. Yeah. But I think that if I'm going to criticize that part of it, I would say that I felt like the script was a little on the nose from it and a little heavy-handed. And I think if they'd done it in a more organic way, it would have been more genuine. Like, say, the way that the original Wonder Woman movie is.
1: Or even similar to Ripley in the Alien movies.
0: Yeah, that's actually a very good comparison. And it's one of those things that I I said a little bit earlier that this didn't break any new ground because it has the same theme as that original Alien movie where the men aren't really listening to the woman. If they were listening to the women, they would be avoiding
1: these situations.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, At the end of the day, I again, I enjoyed it. It was a good way to spend an hour in, it was a good way to spend like 100 minutes so again
0: yeah but you know i think one of the things is that the criticisms that i'm seeing of the movie are you know about the a slow pace or whatever it's like i'm sorry why do you not want to sit there and get to know a character and get to learn a character before the showdown i thought that there was enough predator action in there there they was spaced, plenty they spaced it out well yeah um someone made the um the point that the the French trappers seem superfluous. Well, you have to have a body count somehow. And it really kind of shows not only it shows all kinds of sort of predatory situations because the way that they were acting towards the indigenous people is, of course, historically quite
1: accurate. Yeah. And, you know, I kind of loved them being in there because it kind of laid down a slight mystery at the start of the film, because it's like, who's laying these traps? Who's laying these iron bear traps, because yeah. it certainly isn't the, the Comanches not it.
0: And we see that that wonderful thing of all the bison laying in the field that have been skinned, and you think, oh, did the Predator do this? And he's like, yeah. oh, no, of course not. It was the French trappers.
1: Well, and that's the thing, is like, you're sitting there thinking, did the Predator do this? And thinking, that that's not the Predator style at all. Yeah. It doesn't just kill a bunch of things and leave them there.
0: Yeah, and it was sort of interesting, too, because somebody had made the comment about it not being historically accurate. And another person said, oh, yes, because aliens came down to hunt us in the 1700s. Well, I, I sort of get both both views there. If you're going to set something in the past, you should try to be as historically accurate as you possibly can, even though it's a fantastical situation.
1: And I agree with that to an extent, but the fact of the matter is is sometimes you just have to take an artistic license to make it much more interesting. Yeah, and
0: I suppose that to me that would be one of the criticisms of the movie is that the okay, first of all, it's this isn't a criticism. this is a praise. I love the fact that they used First Nations indigenous actors mm-hmm. I mean it's not some it's not cultural misappropriation. these are, wonderful talented indigenous actors yeah i loved watching them my criticism though is that they sort of uh i, I want to use the right term here they were just really handsome and pretty and buff and there was they
1: were hollywood yeah there, it was there, hollywood there was and
0: nothing that seemed like i mean because i'm sitting there going wow she she has great makeup for uh, a woman that didn't have any makeup
1: well, and that's kind of the thing. They still, they want to make it accurate, but they—it's also got to be marketable.
0: Yeah, but that's that's the sort of thing that I'm getting at. That I think could have taken this movie from being. Uh watchable and and an okay movie to being a really great movie. If it had some of the the grit that, say, Quest for Fire had, you know, where... I'm not saying that they were back in Caveman days. I don't mean I get what you mean. But, like, if it it had a sort of... If it wasn't as sanitized as Hollywood likes to make things now.
1: Well, and it's kind of funny because when you look at the Comanche Warriors, the Comanche Nation there, and you look at them versus the French people, the French people are actually kind of ugly in this movie and i get that's on purpose because they're essentially the villain in the story but they they purposely like i looked i looked at the imdb page for it and the guy i can't remember the, the gentleman's name but the guy that, that played Longbeard, the the leader of the french trappers is he's kind of a goofy looking fellow uh, <laughs> yeah. but uh, again with with the main main cast it has to be marketable it ha- they Of course, they're going to look good. They got to market them. And at the end of the day, uh, Amber Midthunder, she's absolutely beautiful, but she's also really talented. She is
0: a gorgeous girl. I will admit that. And yes, I, I, I want to see more of her because she is very talented. She does carry this picture. She carries it very well. Speaking of gorgeous, I want to talk about the cinematography in this.
1: Well, John, as you know, I am a huge sucker for great cinematography. And this movie had it in spades the a lot of the shots in it and I, I i look at this as based off of just simply the setting itself the uh the the director dan Trachtenberg and whoever the cinematographer was they came up with some really really pretty shots
0: yeah and you know even in in a shot that isn't as pretty as in the vista of the mountains and the streams and the fields yeah where you're in the bog and there's fog and there's moss and there's mud even that has a beautiful surreal quality to it the
1: the part when they're in where the the french trappers have them tied up as bait for the predator that was haunting like that entire area just looked haunting with all the fog and the the scraggly looking dead trees It looked like something out of a horror movie, and I absolutely adored it.
0: And it should have, because this is when we're seeing the full-on wrath of the Predator for probably the first time. Mm -hmm. And there was that wonderful shot where she and her brother are tied to the stake, because, of course, the trappers are using them as bait, because they're aware that this thing is out there. Mm -hmm. And there's that wonderful shot of the Predator leaping over them. Mm -hmm. And you get it from their point of view, seeing the Predator
1: jump. Yeah, and the predator in this one Yeah, it was a CGI creature. Would I have preferred
0: well, a man? No, it wasn't it wasn't. I mean there was a, it, it was actually played by somebody.
1: Oh, was it? Yes. Oh, you're you completely it, wrong that it was not, it was not CGI. Then that is absolutely fantastic because there was so much realism to that suit that even the old Stan Winston suit in the original movie didn't have, and that was a great suit itself. And this is one of the things that I did like about the movie is that, to me, it used
0: CGI properly. It used it to enhance the movie, not
1: be the movie. And, to be honest with you, John, I think that's the way CGI really should be used instead of relying on it to create the monster itself. Or even create the scene. Yeah. yeah, We'll talk about that later.
0: (laughs) So, I mean, we started off trying to make sense of it because I think honestly, the people that are overly praising this they're saying it's the best predator ever it's this it's that it's the other thing i think you're overselling it a little bit because at the end of the day i'm in the middle i'm not on the extreme side of it being the greatest movie ever i'm not on this side of it's like oh this was so boring there wasn't enough action i'm in the middle to me this was a fine movie but that's all it was it was a fine movie it was watchable i wouldn't have been disappointed seeing it in the theaters but to sit there and say that it was dull and it was boring, and it's like then obviously you can't sit through something that builds character that gives you the backstory
1: as to how she's going to defeat this menace. I would completely agree with you on everything you just said. I here's the thing: the bet is not the best Predator movie because the best Predator movie is the it's, first Predator. It's movie. Predator. Yeah. But as far as the sequels go, this is. Heads above the best sequel. And I love Predator 2. I and, think and, Predator 2 is great, but this is a better sequel.
0: And it's smart because it shows you all of the skills that she is picking up, that she has learned, that is going to set her above the hunters and the, the men in this tribe so that she can defeat the
1: menace. Exactly. And if you look at it, it's actually different than Predator 2 as well. Because all Predator 2... Is just Predator One in the city, that's yeah. it. Pre- Predator's Big Day Out, but <laughs> um, as we but made this, money on the first one. Let's make a second. But this one was very much. It, it felt more personal than the first Predator movies. It felt you got to spend more time with these very, with this very wonderful main character, and you got to spend time with her brother and the other members of the tribe, and they are fully fleshed out, as were. And this is where I will say that it is better than the first Predator. The first Predator had very cookie-cutter characters, and Arnold Schwarzenegger was very simply just Arnold Schwarzenegger. But you're kind of
0: looking at it from today's
1: lens yes. back then, because when it yeah. came
0: out, it was fantastic. We hadn't seen something like this before. It was new, it was fresh, it was original. Yes. And it gives you one of AFI's top 100 greatest lines ever, I ain't got time to bleed.
1: Oh, man. So Jesse Ventura, who said that line in the first movie, he actually tweeted out to uh, Amber Thunder saying, uh, you definitely don't got time to bleed. Welcome to the Predator family. And she was like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. That's wonderful. Um, time of truth here, Nick. What are you going to rate it? Six and a half out of ten. Six and a half means I would have happily sat through that in theater and got joy from it. Um, But I'm not going to rate it any higher than that, because again, it is, while it's a good Predator film, it is, it wasn't all that amazing.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm at six and a half, too, for the very same reasons. And when we say it wasn't all that amazing, it was fine. Yeah, I mean,
1: it was, it was a really good movie. Yeah,
0: what it did well, it did okay. Yeah, it was (laughs) a... And again, if it had a grittier writing style, if it had really gone for that kind of meat and potatoes instead of the the disney sanitization of it yeah
1: i think it would have been really stellar. And now that you say that, yeah, it was actually a lot cleaner than previous Predator movies. Even Predator, like Predator 2 was a grimy movie. Right. Like in, in, in LA during the summer and ugh, just a gross looking movie. So yeah, I kind of agree with you we, on that.
0: And honestly, it, this wasn't really bloody enough. I mean, when you think about the first Predator movie, how the one, it's actually Jesse Ventura, it's his chest blown out.
1: Yeah. And the second movie, you have the people with the skin ripped off and their spines ripped out. Yeah. I would I would have liked this movie to be a little bit wetter.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, um, folks, here in Canada, we have to watch it on Disney+, Plus, but I believe it's streaming on Hulu in the yep. States.
1: Yeah, that's correct.
0: So if you want to check it out, that's where you can do it. And Nick, having said that, it is time
1: for the roundup. <laughs> All right, so on this week's roundup, it's going to be a little bit quick because there hasn't been too much. Um, The one thing I want to touch on uh, right out the gate is allegedly, and ladies and gentlemen, aliens, we're just going to say that this is rumor right now. Allegedly, Giancarlo Esposito of Breaking Bad fame, of Mandalorian fame. Of once upon a time fame, uh, he has been meeting with the execs at Marvel, Kevin Feige, about a role, and that role allegedly is Professor X. John, what are your thoughts?
0: Now, is this fact or is this rumor? Again, this is rumor. So let's let's. Okay, so let's assume that it's happening then. Since yes. it's the only rumor, we don't know. My thought is, I love this actor. Yeah, I, he was fantastic in Breaking Bad. You get that marvelous moment where. He comes out, straightens his tie after the explosion, and you see that half of his face is gone. He's just so good at being a villain and also playing a very polite, uh, concerned businessman. I mean, this man can act. However, I don't see him as Professor X.
1: I don't either. And it's it's no shade against him. I just don't think he's the actor for that role part of it
0: is because of
1: patrick stewart and james mcavoy really well and patrick stewart alone really encapsulated that role yeah
0: you took silly putty you put it on a comic you ripped it out there it is
1: yeah exactly i don't know what here's the thing he would be with if they were to take a new team of x-men and plop them down into the marvel age right now He's within the right age range. That I can sit there and go, okay, fine, I get that. But there are things that are going to have to change with Professor X and Magneto to make it modern.
0: I would like to see this actor in the MCU, but as something else, I think.
1: Yeah, there are other characters I'm, I think he would be fine for. Um, spitballing, I, th- I would like to see him, although like, he's actually a little too old for the role, But he would be a very fine Doctor Doom. Um, I'm not sure, but that's your
0: opinion. Go ahead. That is my
1: opinion. He's cold. He's calculating. He can do that very well, just like Victor. But, yeah, I don't think Professor X is the right thing for him.
0: What about um, Mr. Sinister?
1: Mr. Sinister would be a fantastic role for him. I
0: think that's where I could see it. Yeah. If they wanted to use that character.
1: And I think they will. Like... When they introduce the X-Men into the MCU, there's going to be a lot of retread, and I think they're going to want to try and reduce that. Speaking of retread, Nick, what is next? Uh, So, next up, we're going to talk about Warner Brothers. And the decisions that they have been making over the past week.
0: The decision that flabbergasted the pop
1: culture community... So let's talk about that. The first <laughs> the first casualty was Barbara Gordon, Batgirl. The movie that was nearly finished. It was in post production. It probably I don't know when the it was supposed to I think it was supposed to come out in November. And they just canned it. And like And the thing is that we
0: don't really know why I mean there's been the rumor that it was just a piece of garbage but
1: it's like are you telling me that this was worse than Morbius come on well I mean let's not talk about Morbius please (laughs) like here's the thing they have they've come out and said that the quality of the movie had nothing to do with it now that could just be corporate BS it could be but it's hard to determine like they said it's down to um, cost-cutting measure, measures.
0: Well, okay, so first of all, we, we have that merger, right? I mean, Warner Brothers and was, was yeah. taken over by Discovery or yeah. merged with Discovery or whatever. So, I mean, obviously that has to have something to do with it.
1: Well, here, okay, so here's the thing. Let's look at that. So Discovery took over Warner Brothers. There's going to be executives in Discovery who have no clue what they're doing with an actual entertainment company because Discovery is mostly just documentaries and how like let's go film some sharks shark week things like that like discovery is a learning channel and now they've bought warner brothers and they they're making decisions that don't make sense to us now that might make sense to some bean counter on their end i don't know well it 100 percent would because if
0: you're looking at it from a bean counting point of view they can just write this movie off yeah they've basically
1: done the producers it's a tax break yeah, exactly. But now they've also said that they've come up with a 10-year plan. Now, I saw an article today. I didn't get to get into the meat of it, but it looks like they've hired Ike Perlmutter, who was the uh, the original architect of the MCU before Kevin Feige came in. And they've hired him, and he's got this 10-year plan for for the DCEU. Yeah, I'm rolling my eyes, too. 10-year plan, that puts me at
0: 63 I don't want to wait around 10
1: years. Right? Well, and this is the thing. They, DC Warner Brothers tried way too hard to play catch up first with Man of Steel right through to Justice League. They didn't take the time to build to that Justice League film like the Avengers movies did. They just went Man of Steel, Batman versus Superman, Justice League. How do you like that? Well, sure. honestly, it kind of sucked.
0: Yeah, and then they threw in Aquaman and Wonder Woman on top of it, which those movies were actually pretty good, I have to say, especially the first Wonder Woman.
1: Yeah, and I'm really looking forward to the Aquaman. But yeah, like they. So let's continue on from Batgirl. So they've also killed the Scoop sequel. What? Yeah. What? Yeah. What? Yeah. Really, Reggie? Oh. Okay, that's enough of that. <laughs> but like, that's the thing is, like, they're, they're, they've killed that. They killed the Supergirl movie, which was supposed to spin off of The Flash.
0: Well, well I can understand why they did that, because they
1: are completely
0: scrapping The Flash, I'm assuming.
1: No. What? They are not scrapping The they're Flash. They're going to put that out. They are putting that out.
0: But they, they can't back girl, but they're going to put out the weird Ezra Miller... There's... yeah.
1: I mean, like, cons- considering I the don't fact... want to get
0: into that, because that is just... that is something that... Hollywood couldn't even write itself, and we're still kind of trying to figure out all kind of that wackadoodle, but I can't believe that they would put that out, because are people really
1: going to want to go and see a movie starring him? Well, here's the thing. Like, I'm uh, I'm not a big fan of boycotting films because Actor X did Stupid Thing Y, because there's there's more people involved in it than just that actor. I understand that. However... If we're talking about,
0: say, his role in the Fantastic Beast movies, well, that's already been filmed prior to this yeah. weirdness. But this is fresh. This is like a a wound that people are pouring salt and sticking their finger in and throwing vinegar on top of it.
1: What a wonderful visual. Thank you for that. You're welcome. I'm here all day. Try the veal. <laughs> but like, that's the thing, though, is that they have the, Warner Brothers has made it clear the Flash is coming out. But the Flash has also been pushed back. I think they're trying to... Distance themselves from Mr. Miller, or not Mr. Miller, sorry, um, non-binary entity Miller as as much as they can. Because he's just created such a mess.
0: But I think that if they do that, we don't know what kind of continued mess this person is going to wreak.
1: I mean, the last time I checked, they can't find him, so who even knows? And despite the fact they're keeping that movie going... I don't think that the movies that they've cut are going to be the end of it.
0: No, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens as the weeks unfold. Exactly, exactly. Speaking of things unfolding.
1: Yeah, so the next thing we're going to talk about on, on our roundup here is the next Joker movie. Joker Folia Du.
0: And it's interesting about this because one, we know for sure Joaquin Phoenix is back. And he's joined by Lady Gaga. And there has been all kinds of chatter on the internet, good or bad, about this. But we found out something really interesting that might change your
1: perspective on this movie. So, Fully do, Literally French for um, shared psychosis. Or shared delusional disorder. And isn't
0: that interesting that it's a Joker and Harley Quinn movie?
1: Yeah, and... Okay, so when I first heard about this movie going forward, I was told it would be a musical, and I was like, oh my god, no. But it makes
0: me wonder, is it a musical the way that La La Land is a musical?
1: Well, it could be, but just looking at the title of this film, it could make sense to be. It will make all kinds of sense, because that's what I mean. I I said to you, we can't
0: judge this without seeing it. We haven't even seen a trailer. I guess they're just maybe in pre-production at yeah, this point. Yeah, at this point, point they'd they be in pre-production. They have necessarily yeah. shot anything. They're probably doing costume uh, fittings and tests and all that kind of stuff. But it's, you can't judge a movie until you've seen it. And of course it's going to make sense that Lady Gaga is going to sing. But is this just part of the psychosis, part of the madness? Because I don't think that they would go into this as a sequel, and I don't think Walking Phoenix would join it as a sequel if it's not going to be on that same kind of level as Joker.
1: I completely agree with you on that. And it's exciting because if they do what I think they're gonna do, this could stand to be not just a great sequel, but might actually outplay the original Joker. Well, and you know, and this is one of the things, like people are so quick to
0: criticize because I recall when the images of Walking Phoenix as Joker
1: first came out, people were not having Oh, we it. were crapping all over that stuff. And it's the same thing with Heath Ledger's Joker. When Heath Ledger was announced as the Joker, everyone was like, oh, it's that guy from the, the teen comedy movies. And it's like, well, no, he turned out to be one of the greatest representations of the Joker ever.
0: And I have to say that this new information with the translation, when you get into the subtext of that and what that title means, it's going to be interesting for us to watch moving forward
1: yeah i'm i'm super excited for it i can't wait to see who else is in the cast especially if it is a musical because it could be very interesting
0: i still want to hold off on calling it a musical because you know like la la land really was not a musical it was a movie that had musical numbers in it
1: yeah fair enough fair enough
0: so i'm gonna i'm gonna kind of hold off on that
1: okay um, but yeah, still looking forward to it.
0: So aliens, um, Nick and I decided to do something really interesting. We've decided to challenge
1: ourselves.
0: And one another. So if you're a faithful listener, if you're a faithful alien who's been with us for a long time, you know that I grew up on the original Star Wars trilogy. And I found anything Outside of that trilogy to be problematic for very legitimate, well-thought-out reasons. Nick, however, grew up on the prequel trilogy and has really loved it. So I challenged him to try and see it from my point of view as being critical of the Star Wars franchise. And this is
1: what he has had to come up with. So 12 minutes into The Phantom Menace. Now, here's the thing. I... I can watch something with a critical eye, but I can also turn my critical eye off very easily and just watch something and enjoy it. It's how I have to watch some movies. Honestly, it is how I have to watch the prequels. But 12 minutes into The Phantom Menace, I called John to tell him that I hate him. And and John, I apologize. I don't hate you. Oh, you do for this. Oh, I despise you. I despise every fiber (laughs) of your being right now. All right. John... I've got a bad feeling about this. <laughs> How many pages did you of notes did you write? Eight, eight. Okay, so here's and, and that's I, before you just gave up the ghost and stopped. So here's the thing: I episode one was the one I struggled with the most. Episode one is the one that I wrote the most notes for because it has been a long time since I've sat down and watched episode one with a critical eye. And I had forgotten how bad some of it actually was. There were certain w- there were certain points where I fast-forwarded because I the, at a certain point the the, the complaints and the cri- criticisms become the same. Yeah, and I just want to preface this by saying I was in my twenties
0: when *Phantom Menace* came out, and I was not impressed right out of the gate.
1: And I was a pre I was a preteen at the time, and I loved every second of it. But I digress. I digress. So here's here's the thing this movie starts up and you've got that star wars da 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 on like the, the opening score right
0: this the opening
1: score of the john that... williams re-edited
0: uh, it re-recorded it you've got the opening scroll everything starts to feel like a star wars movie
1: yeah and it does like you feel ha- like it's pavlonian to me when i hear the star wars theme the opening trumpets, it makes me automatically happy. I love right. that. We all salivate a little bit. Yeah. Um, but then the scroll starts talking about politics. And it, it's just kind of a very... It goes from that oh my god to just very meh, which kind of sets the tone for the entire movie. Or actually the entire series, but anyway. So at this point we're introduced to Newt Gunray, who is the... Neimoidian head of the Trade Federation. And this is already starting to sound like something from Star Star Trek instead. And that's, again, something that's just terrible. And
0: on that subject matter, I really have to say that I think Star Trek does politics better than Star Wars. No shade on either of the series, I just think Star Trek does politics
1: better. (sighs) That's the thing, though. It's called Star Wars, not Star Politics. (laughs) (sighs) Anyway, um... I do have to bring up some things that do work in this film some of the like the cgi is incredibly spotty throughout the movie but where it shines is the space scenes when you have the cgi ships and you see them um they're amazing and you they look so i don't want to say organic because they're not organic but you know what i mean like they you, you buy it you buy it in space um but here's another problem, though. When you look at the puppetry that they're using for the heads of the nemoidian aliens, the Trade Federation heads, they're terrible puppets.
0: They the, were terrible back in the 90s.
1: Yeah. Like, they're so staticky Like, how do you go from this perfect Yoda puppet in Empire Strikes Back, what, um, 15 years earlier, to... This to this stupidity, which
0: speaks to the mastery of Frank Oz, Muppet maker. Well, even then, the the Yoda
1: puppet that they had. Okay, so in the version I watched, they have since replaced the Yoda puppet that they had in the Phantom Menace with a CGI Yoda, and honestly, that's better because I remember that puppet, and it was a piece of horse crap. It was so bad, and it looked terrible. It looked like a doll, and it was just moving its mouth very jank very very jankily and it just looked terrible um I I just don't know what happened to the puppetry in this film I don't know if George Lucas was so preoccupied with CGI that he just went and whatever who cares I think he was because at the end of the day George Lucas just loves special effects well and that's that's something we'll touch on later with the performances but that's the thing is George Lucas is a technical director real realistically what he should have done was hire a director for these films and just produce it and focus on the special effects aspect that that probably would have made this whole thing a lot better the sets the practical effects except for the puppetry and the cgi in the opening scenes are absolutely great it's the the inside of the the trade federation ship. The, the battle droids, which are all CGI, look great. Like, everything is really, really cool. The demo, and I'm going to keep dragging these uh, Nemo, these Neimoidians, because they're terrible. The prequel series, we can actually compare to Star Trek. So I don't really like comparing Star Wars to overall to Star Trek, because it's like comparing apples to oranges. But in this case, there are a lot of things that the prequels do that Star Trek does as well. Politics being one of them. But the other one is basing alien cultures off of Earth cultures. For example, Klingons are loosely based off of Spartan warriors from, from Greek history.
0: Yeah, and when you look at the undiscovered country, there was that sort of inspiration of Chernobyl and the fall of, of the um, Russian Empire and the Iron Curtain.
1: Exactly. Like they, they know how to take historical events, current events, and all that, and, and utilize it in a story, which is something I've always admired about Star Trek. They're re- the, the writers for Star Trek, whether it be Gene Roddenberry, whether it be Brandon Bragg, whether it be whoever, they're great at that. But George Lucas, he based the Namoidians off of the worst stereotypes of Chinese history. They sound like something... They, they sound like... there, there Was a tea house of the august moon where yeah um with marlon brando yeah yeah and he has this very stereotypical chinese voice and that's how they sound and it's terrible and i may think and it's
0: accidentally racist because i don't think that that was ever the intention to be
1: racist i don't know about that um one of the one of the choices that really bugged me in this movie you have the destroyer droids, those ones that turn into balls and can roll and have huge firepower. Those things are cool. I do not forget... Roger, Roger. No, those are that's the battle droids. That's the battle droids. I don't care, they all look the same to me. But more on that later. The they give the destroyer droids two names Destroyers and Droidicas. The Nemoidians call them Droidicas, the Jedi call them destroyers. Why would you do that from a from a scripting standpoint? That just stands to confuse the audience. And it confused me as a kid. Like, it was too much to linger on, and I didn't like it. Um, now, here's another thing. Now, you and I have discussed this before, and I don't entirely agree with you on this, but there is a disconnect in technology. Even in this film directly, though, if you look at the way the Nemoidians are contacting Palpatine, it's on a hollow viewer. It's that little hollow thing that you see throughout the entire Star Wars series. But when they're talking to Queen Amidala, it's on a screen. Why do they have a screen? Everything else that we have seen in the Star Wars universe shows communication is done through a hollow, hollow viewer. I, I, there's nowhere else that I can think of. And if, if I'm wrong, somebody let me know. But there's no place I can think of where you have a Star Trek style view screen in the original trilogy. Or even in the prequel trilogy or any of the, any of the uh, ancillary media. Like, I uh, think on a...
0: the imperial battleships i think
1: oh you know what yeah yeah there is the scene when um vader turns around in his little um resting sphere pod, whatever vader. you want to call it and you s- okay all right fine fine i'll grant you that but it just seems weird to me that one minute they're using a hollow viewer and the next minute they're using a screen viewer But whatever, that's... It seems disjointed is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. That that might be a little bit picky, but whatever. Now... But that's the challenge. This is going to be where I talk about the inconsistencies in the CGI. So when they land on Naboo, the CGI looks awful. It looks terrible. Because you have... You can see... You have these animals. You have these big droid ships. And they just look terrible against the... You can tell that it's obvious CGI. Like, if you could not tell this is CGI, you are oblivious to it. And it just looks bad. And it's unfortunate because I know George Lucas put a lot of money, a lot of time, and a lot a lot of effort into the CGI. And I do think a lot of the CGI that we see is heads and shoulders above what came out at the time especially looking at other movies like well, how about of- spawn because i mean yeah th- Spawn. Th- the hell awful. scene in spawn was not really great the cgi was terrible in spawn we'll go with that and spawn was a big budget movie at the time as well um but it just looked so bad and now we're going to get into it john jar jar binks oh poor jar jar so here here's the thing and this is this is a A consistent theme when we talk about movies on this podcast. (sighs) Missed opportunity. So, before I explain that, I want to say this. After a while, I stopped taking notes on Jar Jar. Because (laughs) I could actually sit here and talk a good eight hours about what's wrong with Jar Jar in this film. But I'm not going to do that. At the end of the day, he did... When we first see him about to be run over by the battle droid transport ship he throws up jazz hands and dives on his face and i'm like oh my no 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 i can't do this
0: nick i'm enjoying this so
1: much and all i can think of right now is good good let the hate flow through you oh you want to make you want it to be better because i you have no idea how hard it is for me to hold back all the swearing I want to do. It is hard to crap on something you love. But you're making it look good. So Jar Jar... And this is the other thing. Jar Jar is scripted like a moron. The things that he does in this movie are scripted to just be stupid. And I hate it. I hate it with my with my entire gut. I hate it. Because it just doesn't make sense.
0: And I think part of the problem is that unlike the original trilogy... Arguably, maybe, you know, Return of the Jedi and the Ewoks. This feels like it wasn't written by a middle-aged man. It feels like it was written by an eight-year-old boy
1: designed solely to sell toys. And I'm going to be honest with you, I think the Ewoks are absolutely frightening, so whatever. <laughs> but, um, just, just imagine, just imagine you're in the forest of Andor at night and you hear this chattering sound. Well, especially when you realize that they were going to eat Han Solo and Luke Skywalker. I'm just saying, they had, when at the end of the movie, when they're drumming on those Stormtrooper helmets, I'm pretty sure those are Stormtroopers they ate. yeah. Like, 100%. They were just like that meme we saw of the, the Predator Elok with the
0: Stormtrooper. <laughs> That's really a, not far spine. from the truth.
1: So, and I, I hate to crap on Ewan McGregor. Because I love Ewan McGregor. Um, he's a fellow countryman. He's a fantastic actor. But, and this is the thing. When I crap on the performances on, this, on these movies, I'm not crapping on the actors. I'm crapping on George Lucas because he is not an actor's director and that is something that has been told to us by even carrie fisher he doesn't take notes he doesn't give direction on acting and sometimes it shows yeah obi-wan's a jerk obi-wan is an absolute jerk in this movie i want to say another word but i can't say on this podcast but he's a jerk he takes absolute delight in scaring the bejesus out of jar jar he does (laughs) there's a part where he's like that. um That's the sound of a thousand terrible things coming this way to murder you. Or something like that. I can't remember the exact line. But he's got this little smile on his face as he scares the absolute living crap out of Jar Jar. And it's like, why is he doing this? Why is he being the jerk to this animal he just came across? What is the point of this? Anyway, um, to my next point though. And this is another positive point for these movies. But it's a spotty one. Some. Some of the cinematography in these films, wonderful. Absolutely beautiful. The scene where they are swimming to the the Gungan city, absolutely gorgeous. The way it's lit up, the way it comes into view. uh, The establishing shot of uh, the, the, the capital city of Naboo. Absolutely beautiful stuff. It is unfortunate that some of the other shots are crap. And like when you look at the the end battle in this movie it just looks it looks like a cartoon It looks terrible and yeah i i i don't know what to say about that because the cinematography it, it seems like it was the cinematography was done by two different people someone who knew what they were doing and somebody who was twiddling their thumbs and playing tiddlywinks <sighs> okay design choices in this we'll get to that in a second actually Okay, so I just said that the, the shot leading up to the Gungan City, absolutely beautiful, but then they get into the Gungan City, and then you meet the rest of the Gungans, and they're all insipid, John. <laughs> the, 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 the captain, the, 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 the head of the Gungan army, Captain Tarples. of all things, that's his name, Captain Tarples comes up and tells Jar Jar that he's in Big Doodoo now. This was not written by an adult.
0: No, like it doesn't sound like it. I mean, look, Admiral Akbar from the original trilogy—it's a trap. I mean, he's a fish. I mean, whatever. It's a weird kind of, kind of look. But considering that that is where the original trilogy went with all these kind of different aliens, I'm, I'm gonna kind of forgive it a
1: little bit. But it's really the speech pattern. It, it is. I mean, like, the the look, whatever. The, but the look's inconsistent. The vast majority of the Gungans look like catfish with big ears. And then you have Boss Nass, their king, who doesn't. He he has a very flat face. He doesn't have the whiskers that some of them do. He's, his design doesn't make sense. Yeah, he looks very, very, very different without any
0: explanation.
1: Yeah, and we don't see any other Gungans that look like him. And it really just... Like, I understand the idea of wanting to set this King character apart from the rest of them, but he doesn't make sense from a design point of view. Now, here's another thing that I actually didn't notice until I watched it this week. When, when Qui-Gon says he, Jar Jar owes as a life debt and they let him go. Jar Jar says better dead here than dead in the core." Were they going to kill Jar Jar for being clumsy? They were going to straight up murk him. <laughs> like that—that that seems to be the inference here. That like Jar Jar is clumsy. He was banned. He came back. They would essentially be killing him for being clumsy. But whatever, whatever. Um, also, scuba diving in Naboo would be absolutely terrifying with those giant fish. Just saying. Um, also, uh, this this message goes directly to George Lucas. <laughs> Are you listening, George? Are you listening, George? Because I have this to say to you. There isn't always a bigger fish. Please ask your friend Steven. Now, going along that line, they have the scene where they're being chased by the giant fish, and then another one comes along and eats that fish. They literally did that bit, bit twice in, in less than two minutes.
0: Nick, you have barely scratched the surface of
1: this, and you haven't even gotten to the other
0: movies. I know.
1: I'm going to try and wrap it up on episode one, because this is ridiculous. Um the green screen you haven't even gotten that far into the phantom menace the green screen is obvious the green screen is when you see the green screen it's absolutely obvious um, more jar jar binks stupid Pratt falls when they when they escape the planet why is it r2 why did it have to be r2d2 and c3po in this movie why could it just not be another set of droids? It
0: shouldn't have been because, again, it gets back to the fact that it took me right out back in, what, what did this come out in, like, 95-ish? Something yeah. like that? Nin- it, 99, 99.
1: 99?
0: Yeah, okay. I, this is just, I, I've removed it from my memory because, really, Darth Vader made C-3PO? Really? Yeah, That I,
1: I that is always a choice I've never agreed with. It's always been something that's contrived crap to me. But just, ugh. I hate that. Having I hate... R2-D2
0: and C-3PO in these prequels is just crap. The only character that should have been in there is Anakin Skywalker and Obi-Wan. And Palpatine, of course. And,
1: yeah, and Palpatine. All right. And, well, Yoda. I Yeah. But yeah. that's it. That's it. The There's more inconsistent CGI. There, there's actually inconsistent CGI in the very, very same shot. So there's a scene where you see a ship and a speeder fly by. Um though the, the ship and the speeder look fantastic but then there's a CGI bantha off to the left of the screen that looks terrible yeah. it looks absolutely god and awful. you and
0: I disagreed on this I don't feel like a lot of the aesthetics in this match the aesthetics of the original trilogy I understand that you know they were made in the 70s and 80s and these ones were made in the 90s and up but it didn't feel like it matched the world
1: I I watched for that and i will agree with you on the ships on naboo the ships that come from naboo are incredibly streamlined very pretty ships but once you get to Tatooine, you start seeing the other ships even the pod the pod racers they look um, very much like something that could exist in the original trilogy if they, they were they built out of of model. they sort of do
0: but my problem with the pod racers cuz i recently rewatched these myself th- that thing would not work
1: yeah, well, I mean, this is about a galaxy where they have laser swords and they can jump super high. Anyway. I buy the laser so, swords. I buy the lightsabers. I don't buy the pods. And another problem is between Jar Jar and the pit droids, there's so much slapstick. Why are the pit droids so stupid? Like, they're supposed to be helpers in a, in a junk shop, and they're just making a mess. It's so stupid.
0: Yeah, and you know, you haven't even gotten, like, you've just honestly scratched the surface of phantom menace you haven't even gotten to (laughs) attack of the
1: clones yeah so that's what i'll do right now attack of the clones i'll skip i i still have some notes on phantom menace but whatever i've already made my point clear on that episode two i can skip ahead a few things here like Palpatine has really awkward dialogue in in the first part of the movie um why is jar jar a senator why (laughs) is he a senator like i just don't get it um, Obi-Wan, throughout this entire movie, has really clunky dialogue, and he is constantly infantilizing Anakin. He keeps referring to him as my young Padawan, or my very young Padawan, or just some stupid variation of that. Like, no like no wonder Anakin hates this guy at this point. And it's... Ugh, um, the... Yeah, like, why does obi-wan spend the entire movie doing that i don't understand it
0: yeah and you know there's a lot of people back in the day they were really kind of just bullying um hayden christensen but i mean listen so no matter what at the end of the day no matter how good or bad an actor you are you can't sell bad
1: dialogue and that's exactly it the dialogue in attack of the clones is terrible it is it is incredibly bad and i have always said that attack of the clones is the weakest star wars movie and I will say, after rewatching it, even weaker than the Last Jedi, because it is just clunky, terrible, god awful dialogue. And it's boring and it, weird, and again, nothing
0: matches. And it's like, uh, and again, all this focus on R2D2 and C3PO that shouldn't even be there. The,
1: and then the sets, like the all CGI sets, look like a video game. Like you watch them, it's clearly it's clearly green screen. There's certain parts where they're walking on these sets, and it looks kind of like they're floating above them. Yeah. It's it's so bad. And, you know, some of the
0: visuals of this reminded me of a superior movie, The Fifth Element.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Um, That stupid diner scene with uh, Dexter Jetster, I hate that. I hate that. What is Jawa juice? Like, do they... Just some of the stuff they come come away with. I never knew
0: you could milk a Jawa.
1: Exactly. Um... Hayden Christensen and Natalie Portman have zero chemistry as a couple. Absolutely none. The dialogue is absolutely like the the romantic dialogue between them is terrible. Um here's here's a here's a story choice that it, one it went absolutely nowhere in the grand scheme of these movies. But this is something that happens in the movie that goes why why would you want to do this? So at one point Mace Windu says to Yoda should we notify the Senate that our ability to use the force has diminished? And Yoda says, no, we'd have more enemies if we do that. Like, why would you even suggest that? That is literally one of the dumbest things any of these characters has said. And that includes Jar Jar. Um, well, and,
0: and for me, and I, I don't come for me. I know some of these fans are going to disagree with me. I don't like the quote-unquote canon of, is it midichlorians, this little... Almost
1: virus that gives yeah, you your Jedi powers. Yeah. I, honestly, I didn't even want to touch on that. because There's things that I just don't need to be talked about. Um, the Tuscan Raider scene, which should have been this big emotional moment, fell flat as four o'clock because there was no d- proper direction for it. Hayden Christensen looked confused. Um, Pranilla August, bless her, she did a great job with what she had, but th- the emotion wasn't there. Um... I felt like Anakin was written. He was so petulant. I felt like he was written for someone younger. Um, everything is Jar Jar's fault. Everything is Jar Jar's fault. And Obi-Wan is such a jerk in this film. Such a jerk. The droid factory scene is cartoonish. Um, I feel like Lucas forgot how to write for Yoda. Because there's the part where he says, Around the survivors, a perimeter to create. Yoda wouldn't have said that would have said, create a perimeter around the survivors, you will. Yeah. That's what you, how you, ah, Well, anyway.
0: that's getting into some nitpicky dialogue choices, oh, I no, think. No, no, it's, it's
1: complete inconsistency. I don't well, think it's nitpicky. Well, okay,
0: yeah, it is inconsistent, absolutely. Here I am defending it. Yeah, what are you doing? You're, know. It's me that defends this crap. I'm, I'm just saying, and maybe this is the, the, the thought process. But, I mean, like, it's just, uh, yeah, I mean, here's here's the bottom line um i didn't really i i think what they did with the obi-wan kenobi series was head and shoulders above these trilogies yeah. but this is not to me where star wars needs to go star wars needs to go along the lines of the mandalorian it yeah. needs to go along from the trailers that i've seen and or that looks that looks badass
1: yeah and I don't I actually don't have a lot of notes for episode three, so i want to go through that very quickly. Um, episode three, to me is, and it still is after watching them uh, this past week. Episode three is still the strongest of the prequel trilogy.
0: That's not saying much in my I books. Know,
1: low bar, low bar. Um, the opening scene is fantastic. You like when it comes away from the scroll, and you have that boom, boom, like banging war drums, like chills. And then Anakin and Obi-Wan fly into the absolute chaos that is the atmosphere of Coruscant and you got all those ships blowing each other apart it was beautiful and it looked great. The performances are much better in this film Obi-Wan doesn't come off like a complete jerk. I buy what Hayden Christensen is selling in this film. Now I do know that Hayden Christensen got himself an acting coach for this film and I think that was a smart choice because George Lucas was not doing the director thing for him. And I don't think that he was the only actor that did that. I do. I, I have no confirmation in this, but the with the absolute change in so, how some of these actors' um, performances improve, I would even say that Ewan McGregor probably did the same thing. His performance as Obi Wan Kenobi in this film is so so good. Um, you're
0: supposed to be criticizing it.
1: I know, but like, okay. Um, but I, I am criticizing it, but I'm still going to talk about what works for this film. The chemistry between Anakin Skywalker and Obi-Wan is so much better. The green screen doesn't look as obvious. The CGI sets look like sets. That being said, the amount of slapstick and stupid humor in this film is still moronic. And it's here's the thing. When, when they did Attack of the Clones... They heavily, heavily reduced Jar Jar's part. But that didn't, and everyone's like, yeah, it'll be better. It wasn't, because all the slapstick was just moved to other characters, like C-3PO in Attack of the Clones, like the battle droids from Revenge of the Sith. The slapstick's still there. It's still stupid. It's still ugly, and I hate it. Um, the the, the, The relationship between Queen Amidala and Anakin is still terrible. They still have no no chemistry and it's insipid
0: yeah it's really hard to for me to buy that these two fell in love i mean especially when you look at natalie portman and chris hemsworth as thor and jane
1: yeah and two more points i'm going to make is one sam jackson who is an accomplished actor went through this entire movie just looking confused he does not know what's going on around him and it shows
0: and can we just get to the point where (laughs) and you see all
1: kinds of memes making fun of it as
0: they should where Anakin just straight up murks a bunch of children.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um my final point though is very simply going to be a story point. Anakin Skywalker was supposed to be seduced by the dark side. Palpatine very quickly manipulates him and that's it. There's no yeah. there's no seduction. There's no Palpatine rolling up his skirt. and like, how you doing, baby? (laughs) There's no, there's nothing. And it falls very flat. But again, I still say that Revenge of the Sith is a good movie, but it still has a lot to live up to. Revenge of the
0: Sith is a movie.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, it exists. The first two suck.
0: Now, aliens, poor Nick, because I know he loves this. But Nick, on our next episode, what do I have to do?
1: You have to criticize Halloween.
0: Oh, oh, my favorite time of year, my favorite holiday, my top horror movie. I have to criticize the franchise Halloween, which is going to be tough because John Carpenter and Deborah Hill made a really masterful yeah. horror movie in the first Halloween.
1: Well, and that's the thing. I think you're going to have a really tough time trying to find something to criticize with the first movie. But as the series goes along, eh? Oh, yeah. I mean,
0: listen, not, not, I can admit, not every movie in that my beloved franchise is stellar. And uh, I'll start right now sort of as a precursor. This is a problem when franchises go on too long. We now have like three different timelines to contend with. And a lot of inconsistencies, which I will talk about on our next episode. Indeed. But aliens, before we go, we have one final thing that we must talk about. Uh, and it's sad, but we're not gonna we're not gonna focus on the sadness of this. We're going to focus and make this a tribute to Nichelle Nichols, who played Lieutenant Uhura in the Star Trek series and movies. What a wonderful woman she was. I met her at uh, the Hamilton Comic-Con. Yeah. Let me tell you the story behind that. She was supposed to be at the Niagara Falls Comic-Con. I went specifically to meet her. Yeah. And she had taken ill. I think she had a a, a minor stroke or something like that. So she couldn't attend. And I couldn't attend the Hamilton Comic-Con. I had things going on that weekend. But... Luckily, I was able to sort of maneuver things around at the last minute mm-hmm. and I raced to Hamilton, couldn't find the place, had to phone my friend John Miori, who was uh, an actor and plays all kinds of zombies and different things and uh, has <laughs> he's had a great opening in Japan with Ouija Shark 2. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's just it, it, John uh, is a fan of our show and we wish him well in all of those uh movies that he makes so i called john i said where is this place and he gave me directions to it thank goodness he was there and i raced in and i was sort of at the almost getting to the end of it and i get to Nichelle nichols table and i'm out of breath and she tells me to relax and sit down for a minute and i do so and i i tell her the story of me getting there and she was so touched by that and she says "Oh, bless you for this this is marvelous, and we we have a wonderful photo. We she did the 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 Spock finger. Live long and prosper, yeah. Yeah, and she was. We just had a nice conversation about how important Uhura was and how important that character was to that genre, to the point that she had a discussion with Martin Luther King.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm aware of that. She, yeah,
0: she said she was thinking about just leaving star trek and he was so crestfallen he said don't you dare leave that because i don't think you understand the importance that you are a black woman on television in the 1960s being treated as an equal
1: yeah um i it's it's sad it's not overly shocking she was of an older age but at the very end of the day she leaves us with some of the best possible sci-fi memories ever
0: she gives us a rich legacy they did groundbreaking things they did political things that kiss between her and captain Kirk. Yep. yes it had to be forced but can you imagine that the uh, the first interracial kiss on television yeah uh, and that playing in states that were not supportive of that uh-huh uh it, it just the things that they did and the importance of this character, because she's one of the first strong black female characters mm-hmm. that we see.
1: Right. And yeah. It
0: was so organic the way that they did star Trek that how could you be offended by anything that they did in this marvelous group of people that they have, where they have a Russian citizen. I mean, cold war going on. Mm-hmm. They have a Japanese citizen. Yep. They have a black citizen, they have a Scottish citizen, just to round it out, (laughs) (laughs) and they have an alien who is completely logical and, uh, for lack of a better term, a cocky, confident, arrogant, white captain who takes advice and consideration of all of these people.
1: That was always one of the messages about star trek even today that i love is the the le- the idea of not just inclusivity but also working together as a unit
0: yeah and you know it's crushing that someone as important culturally as Nichelle nichols has left us but i've seen so many warm memes of her Sort of beaming aboard to be with Leonard Nimoy yeah. and James yeah, Doohan yeah. and DeForest Kelly. you know, it's just, it's heartwarming in a way. It's sad in a way. I'm glad I had the opportunity to meet her. I showed uh, Walter Kennig the picture of me and Michelle when I met him yeah. at Niagara Falls Comic Con, and he just smiled from ear to ear. There was just a lot of love and camaraderie with that cast. Yeah. uh, Even though they had their differences. Well, and that's the
1: thing. They're always going to have their differences, but they were always part of the Star Trek family.
0: Yeah. And they were, they were the, the parents of the Star Trek family.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And and so we get to see that interpreted by a new cast. And Zoe Saldana has done a great job of bringing on the Uhura legacy.
1: Or even Celia Rose Gooding in Strange New Worlds right now. She is doing a fantastic job as Yuhura. Yeah,
0: and she is playing Yuhura um, as an ensign, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's temporarily... In the first season, she's temporarily assigned to the Enterprise, right. but then she goes on to be a permanent part.
0: Yeah, and I want to I bring up a point, too, that they, um, they expanded on it again in Undiscovered Country. Yep. Where... People have sort of criticized it. It's like, oh, yes, she's this woman. She's equal, but she's still the secretary. No, screw that. She was not a secretary. She was the communications officer.
1: Yeah. Like, okay, so the Enterprise did have yeomans.
0: Yeah. They were
1: designated as yeomans. Yeah. But she was an officer.
0: That's right. And not only that, but it it also speaks to the fact that she could speak multiple alien languages. Yeah. She was intelligent. She was savvy. Mm-hmm. She was smart. You see that in various movies where she comes up with the idea of tricking the Klingons into, you know, the, using an old code and the language and encouraging them. She tricks the guys in um, um, Star Trek V where she does the fan dance. Yeah. And then they, you know, she is a smart, witty, clever character played brilliantly by Michelle Nichols. Yep. She understood the importance and also because of the status. She started off as a guest role. Yeah. She made more money. Yeah, right. Really? She made more money doing that. Excellent. uh, But then, of course, they, of course, put her in the regular cast, but she was making more money as a guest spot than she was uh, being considered part of the the cast initially
1: that's that's kind of cool well michelle nichols has boldly gone but we'll never forget her she is one of the true icons of sci-fi and pop culture
0: absolutely and you know what we are better off for having her performances i agree Aliens, that is all the time that we have for this episode of Area 51. But before we go, Nick, remind our aliens how they can get a hold of us one more time.
1: Well, you can find us at the Area 51 h on Twitter. Same thing with Instagram and TikTok. And you can also find us on Facebook by searching Area 51 and a half.
0: And don't forget to join us in two weeks when I have to savage Halloween. Oh,
1: I am looking forward to that. Everyone, please... Do not forget to subscribe, like, share us to all your friends, even your enemies. We'd appreciate it. And thank you for joining
0: us at Area 51 and a Half. This is John Allen.
1: And SnyderMan501,
0: Nick Snyder. Saying happy landings.